This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, and welcome to a new episode. I'm Catherine Bliss, Director for Immunizations and Health Systems Resilience at the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. And it's my pleasure today to speak with Jeff Sturchio, currently a senior associate with CSIS. Now, Jeff has worked in the global health policy area for several decades over a career that bridges the private and the nonprofit sectors. He worked at Merck and Company, served as CEO of the Global Health Council, and recently stepped down as CEO of the global health consulting firm, Raven Martin. Jeff is currently chair of the board of Friends of the Global Fight. And once upon a time, Jeff did a PhD in the history of medicine and public health. So I like to think this means that he can really take the long view when looking back or looking ahead when it comes to health policy matters. Now, earlier this fall, Jeff, in collaboration with CSIS colleagues, Mackenzie Burke and McLean Spear, published an analytical report looking at the goals and achievements of the federal government's Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative. EHE, as it is known, was launched in 2019 and proposes reducing new HIV infections domestically by 75% by 2025 and 90% by 2030. Currently, there are more than 35,000 new HIV infections per year in the United States, So reducing new cases to 9,250 or fewer by 2025 is ambitious indeed. The initiative is based on a four-pronged approach that I think Jeff will hopefully tell us a little bit more about. It looks at diagnosis, treatment, prevention, and response to really address a number of different aspects of the HIV epidemic in the United States. But despite clear measurable goals and good plans, Jeff and colleagues argue in this new report that EHE is off track. So we'll talk today about the EHE initiative, why it's not likely to meet its goals in the current context, what domestic problems can learn from international HIV prevention and treatment programs, such as the U.S. President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR, and the future of the EHE initiative in 2023 and beyond as a new Congress takes office. So Jeff, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Thanks, Catherine. Glad to join you. First of all, you know, I'd really just like to ask you to describe the EHE initiative, its origin and its goals and progress so far. Why was it set up? And what are some of the reasons that you and colleagues say that it's off track in the current context? Well, as you said already, you pointed out that the Ending the HIV Epidemic in the U.S. initiative is designed to reduce new HIV infections by 90% by 2030. 
And it's a very ambitious and promising federal program. It's really a whole of government program. It's coordinated from the Assistant Secretary of Health's office. It involves the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Health Resources and Services Administration, the U.S. Public Health Service, the Indian Health Service, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and the NIH. So you can see that there's been an effort to bring together all of the different capabilities of the federal government to work with local jurisdictions to help achieve the goals of the program. And those goals are based on four main pillars, to diagnose all people with HIV as early as possible, to treat people with HIV rapidly and effectively to reach sustained viral suppression, to prevent new HIV transmission by using proven interventions, including pre-exposure prophylaxis and syringe services programs, and to respond quickly to potential HIV outbreaks to get needed prevention and treatment services to people who need them. It's focused on, and this is really the key design element of the program, it was in, launched in February 2019 by Anthony Fauci, who was then the director of the National Institutes of Health Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Robert Redfield, who was the director of the Centers for Disease Control, and Brett Girard, who was the Assistant Secretary of Health. And it's designed to look at 57 priority jurisdictions. That's the 48 counties plus the District of Columbia and San Juan, Puerto Rico, along with seven states, rather, that have a significant rural burden of HIV, so that those 57 jurisdictions account for the majority of the HIV infections that occur in the U.S. every year. We argue in the report that the program is off track. You know, at the current rate, they're only going to get to about 30,000 infections per year by 2025, not the 9,250 that is the target. And there are a number of reasons why that's the case. First, the program has never been fully funded from the beginning, and that obviously has an impact. But also, the indicators are moving in the right direction, but they're just not moving fast enough. I've already alluded to HIV incidence. Also, the goal is to reach 95% of people linked to HIV care. That is doing better. They're actually at about 83%, but there's still a ways to go. And for pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, the coverage goal is 50%, but it's now stalled at about 25%. And it's been there for quite some time. The reasons for this are that the different jurisdictions are at different stages in their response to HIV. Because this is a complex program, some jurisdictions have done well and they've built on already existing programs. Others have just started to build those programs. So there's a different rate at which different localities have been able to respond. And also another reason, uh, let's face it, that has had an impact is that the COVID-19 pandemic hit the U.S. shortly after the program just got started. Those dual epidemics have obviously had an impact on how quickly the EHE initiative has been able to really ramp up. Last week was World AIDS Day on December 1st. And at that time, UNAIDS released a new report pointing to gender inequalities and harmful masculinities as drivers of new HIV infections in many parts of the world. At the same time, the new PEPFAR strategy was released. And it also focuses on social inequalities, as well as the importance of strengthening health systems as critical elements of a comprehensive approach to HIV prevention and treatment, you know, really looking at these last three years of pandemic as in some ways having widened gaps in terms of access to prevention and treatment, as you've said, but also opportunities for 
innovation and changing approaches to providing medicine in kind of a decentralized way outside of clinics and some of those innovations that we've seen that may be able to be harnessed for improvements in the years ahead. So I wanted to ask you to reflect on the focus at the global level on some of the different inequalities and the importance of health system strengthening and ask if these themes resonate with, A, what we know about the domestic HIV epidemic, and I guess, B, you know, to ask if the U.S. should be kind of looking at what's happening overseas in terms of the global programs and if there are lessons from global programs, particularly what's happened during the COVID-19 pandemic, that can be relevant for strengthening and improving these domestic programs? Sure. Well, those are both good questions. I think, you know, first on the dangerous inequalities that we're still seeing in the response to the HIV epidemic, it's well known by now, and this applies both globally and in the U.S., that there are structural racism and other barriers to HIV prevention, care, and treatment have created and continue to create systemic barriers to equitable access for populations at risk in many areas of the U.S. And this came up again and again in the work that we did looking at the EHAE initiative and its progress. You know, there are some states that still have laws on the books that criminalize HIV infection, and that just reinforces stigma and discrimination as well as homophobia and makes it difficult for people to gain access to available resources for HIV treatment and care or to protect themselves against infections by obtaining PrEP. In the U.S. also, immigration status can become a barrier to obtaining prevention, care, and treatment because of the fear that health workers may be required to inform authorities about immigration status of their clients. On another level, just another example, access to PrEP is problematic in some areas. It may be theoretically available in most clinics, but Kate McManus at the University of Virginia and her colleagues have studied the fact that there's up to a 16-fold difference in prior authorization requirements for access to PrEP in the South. And obviously, that has an impact on PrEP uptake and the ability of people in those regions to get access to that prevention tool. So those are just a few of the ways in which we still see these inequalities. Now, the other question that you asked is, what are some of the ways in which global approaches to these issues are applicable in the U.S.? And I think the answer there is clearly yes. For instance, PEPFAR has pioneered, for instance, such approaches as multi-month prescribing of antiretrovirals and differentiated service delivery so that they can really tailor the programs to the needs of the individuals in the communities in which they're operating. And they found that those two approaches have been really important in helping to ensure or improve the equity of services and also to improve health outcomes. And we could touch on a number of different areas in which PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, has done important work on workforce development, on data systems, on the kinds of partnerships at the local level, on behavioral and implementation science, and on HIV testing services all of which have led to important innovations that have helped to improve delivery of both prevention and treatment services to people in the communities that PEPFAR is operating in. And I think a lot of those approaches are applicable in, and some of them have been applied in the EHE initiative in certain jurisdictions. One area in particular that I just wanted to focus on is the way in which PEPFAR has made a really important focus on community leadership so that in the PEPFAR-supported countries, people at the community level who really know what needs and capacities and resources are available at the community level 
are able to help drive meaningful people-centered impact by being very much part of the design and implementation of programs that PEPFAR is doing. And by bringing community voices and community expertise into the design and implementation of programs, it's ensured that the most vulnerable and underrepresented communities are well-positioned to help make decisions shaping the aspects of prevention and treatment programs that have an impact on their communities. So I think that's an important element of how PEPFAR and global initiatives have uh, generated learnings that are being applied in, in the EHE initiative. So can I ask you, one of the things that has come out of the last three years and the increased interest in or focus on pandemic preparedness and response is this effort, you know, really to look at the ways in which PEPFAR programs globally, you know, some of those investments or assets supporting labs, for example, and some of what you've talked about strengthening the health workforce and that kind of thing had really served as platforms or anchors for the delivery of COVID response services. And so there's a lot of talk now about <laughs> how do you integrate HIV platforms and services with pandemic preparedness and response. Are you hearing that kind of discussion here in the United States, you know, where health issues are so federated and, you know, really spread out among the different states? I mean, yes, we have federal agencies, but ultimately funding and decision making does happen at the state level. Where do you see that conversation about the integration of pandemic preparedness and HIV really taking shape here domestically? I think it has become part of the conversation domestically as well. And it's because of the experience of the last few years. I mean, just think about it. When the COVID pandemic hit in early 2020, it was the same healthcare workforce, the same healthcare institutions, the same public health departments that were dealing with HIV AIDS who now had to cope with COVID-19. So it wasn't as if they could turn to a completely different health workforce to deal with COVID-19. They had to just add that to what they were already doing. As a result of that, I mean, there were heroic efforts to really deal with this new pandemic at the same time, but it had an impact on the ability to continue to provide the level of service that was needed for people who were HIV positive and were on treatment and needed access to clinics and to healthcare resources as well as maintaining community outreach to encourage people to use PrEP and to take advantage of other prevention resources. So I think that the healthcare communities and the public health system have really begun to focus anew on the need to integrate because it's critical to design and sustain service delivery models that will be able to deal in a resilient way with whatever challenges the healthcare system faces. And the benefits of greater integration include improved access and uptake of services, reduced HIV-related stigma and discrimination, improved coverage of health services in key populations, better utilization of trained healthcare workers, reduced duplication of effort, and reduced competition for resources, and also potential budget savings as a result. So building linkages among these different programs should lead to better health outcomes and more efficient use of the resources that are invested by public health institutions. That's the rationale for greater integration, and I think that we're going to continue to see more of that. So you talked about resources and you know potential cost savings, and this you know makes me think about the funding scenario for the EHE programs. You know, you and your colleagues write that EHE has really over the past three years enjoyed bipartisan support, and we've certainly seen that on the global level with support for PEPFAR as well. PEPFAR has a reauthorization coming up next year, but your report really also underscores the fact that. 
current funding levels are inadequate for meeting the 2025 and 2030 goals. You know, you've already noted that these are quite off track with just two years to go until 2025. We've got a new Congress with several first-time members taking office in just a few weeks. And I wanted to ask how optimistic you are that we'll see bipartisanship and increased funding for EHE and for the domestic HIV response when the next Congress convenes in 2023. It's hard to predict what any Congress is going to do. That's one caveat I have to start with. I think that one of the things that gives me hope, and I've been involved in work on HIV policy for more than 25 years, as you mentioned at the outset, and you have to be optimistic in this field. But one of the things that's important is that Although some members of Congress have left and we have new members of Congress coming in, many of the stalwart proponents and champions of supporting HIV programs are still in Congress on both sides of the aisles. That gives me some hope that we'll continue to see that kind of bipartisan support. Also, the Biden administration asked for the most money for ending the HIV epidemic initiative of any administration up until now. So in the fiscal 23 budget request, there was a substantial component. And so far, given the work that the appropriators have done, their Congress has shown at least where we stand now, even though the budget isn't final, they certainly have allocated more money for EAG. But the challenge, as you alluded to, Catherine, is that if you model the amount of resources that are required to reach the goals of EAG, for instance, even the Biden administration's budget request for FY23 is only half of the amount that would be needed to get us back on track over the next couple of years. And that means that between now and 2030, there's still a need for substantial new resources for EHE to get to where we need to go. You know, and when you put that together with all the other pressures on Congress and the uncertainties of the new Congress in 2023, we'll have to see where it comes out. I'm hopeful that we will see that these amounts are actually allocated and put to use by the 57 jurisdictions in EHE to continue to make progress. I think there are grounds for optimism. HIV, both domestic and global, has enjoyed strong and persistent bipartisan support for decades. The human costs of the pandemic and the costs of inaction have persuaded Congress to act with generosity and compassion. But beyond those compelling reasons, we've also seen in the past few years that the investments in health systems and service delivery platforms for HIV-AIDS has contributed to our ability to respond to emerging threats like the COVID-19 pandemic. This is both an efficient use of taxpayer funds and a way of ensuring that we're better prepared for future threats to America's health security. It sounds like even if we're hearing that some on the Hill are just saying people are just saying they don't want to hear about COVID anymore, they don't want to hear about the pandemic anymore, you know, there's really a, an interest in just kind of moving beyond that. There may still be openness and opportunities for educating new members, you know, about what's happening with the domestic HIV epidemic and really thinking about ways to better integrate thinking about the domestic and global responses to HIV into the discussion for some of the new members, both of the House and the Senate. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I'm glad you mentioned the opportunity for educating new members, because that's always critical. One of the things I don't want to undervalue in, in this discussion is that there's been a lot of really creative work done in the EHE initiative. You know, for instance, I'll just give you one example in East Baton Rouge in Louisiana. There was an interesting approach using incentives 
to encourage people to go and there would be cash payments if people went for follow-up visits. There would be cash subsidies for transportation to the clinic. And they found that through that, they were able to get to really high levels of treatment coverage and persistence by providing just simple incentives for people to do the things they needed to do to stay on treatment. You know, and that's an interesting innovation at the local level that really showed that it had important impact. Another example is the pop-up clinics that were done in San Francisco, where they provided a set of wraparound services to a homeless population who were just not getting HIV treatment at all beforehand because of the complicated nature of their lives. And by bringing the clinic to people where they were, they were able to provide them with housing support. They were able to get them to go to follow up on initial diagnosis and HIV treatment plans. And over the course of the first year of this program, by putting together these services and bringing them to the people, they were able to get the rate of viral suppression in that population from zero to 44% in just 12 months. So, you know, those are examples of the kind of creative innovation that we've seen in different parts of the EHE initiative. And that's one of the reasons why I think it should be possible to persuade Congress to provide more support, because the money is getting results. It's improving people's lives. It's being used efficiently. And with more money, we can get to the goal of achieving a 90% reduction in HIV infection by 2030. And that carries with it all kinds of positive repercussions for public health and for public health budgets, because we'll be able to avoid costs that would be incurred if those people do remain HIV positive and aren't getting treated, it leads to even greater costs in the system. So it sounds like some of the really creative solutions that have taken shape at the community level are recognizing that people's health and medical issues take place within a much larger and complicated life. And so if you're trying to treat the health conditions, you really need to do that within a context of understanding their housing, their financial needs, their employment or living situation and the wide variety of those. So let me ask you, you know, as you look ahead to 2023, the interim goal by 2025, and then, of course, in the longer term to 2030, what are the top one or two policy, I guess, debates that are really pivotal for EHE that you will be paying the closest attention to? Sure. Well, let me mention four things, and I'll try to do it quickly. The first is that I hope that we'll continue to see that the EHE initiative meets people where they are. I think communities directly affected by HIV play a critical role in planning and implementing programs that address their needs. And by meeting people where they are, it helps to build trust with individuals living with HIV and at risk of acquiring HIV infection and design programs that will help ensure that the EHE initiative can achieve its goals. So that's the first. The second is, and we've talked about this, implementers can learn a lot from the experience of the global HIV response. And I hope that we'll continue to see that some of the successes from PEPFAR and other global programs, which have introduced initiatives like multi-month dispensing of antiretrovirals and differentiated service delivery, will continue to be adapted and applied in EHE jurisdictions. The third is that, and we spoke about this as well, we should plan for a future in which there's an integrated policy strategy for pandemic preparedness and response together with the response to the HIV epidemic, because these complex challenges of fighting concomitant epidemics are going to continue to be with us. And we've already seen that you know, similar challenges have arisen with the unexpected outbreaks of monkeypox in the last several months, 
And for long-term sustainability of the EHE initiative and to avoid internecine arguments over which infectious disease agenda should take priority, it's going to be important to emphasize that the breakthroughs in HIV-AIDS science over the last 40 years have led to breakthroughs in other areas of research. And so having a combined and coordinated strategy for pandemic preparedness and response is the best way forward for both HIV and for other infectious diseases. And then finally, and this is perhaps the most important point, because without it, nothing else will happen, the EHE initiative needs to be fully funded. You know, without the right level of resources to enable accelerated action, we're not going to be able to meet the 2030 goals for EHE, and Congress holds the answer to those questions. So agreement and alignment regarding what needs to be done with the Biden administration, with uh, federal, state, tribal, and local agencies and affected communities will send a strong signal in support of such funding. And so it's up to us to continue to advocate for Congress to act. And with the fully funding EHE, we can reach the goal of 90% decline in HIV infection by 2030. Jeff Sturcio, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today about the promise and challenges associated with the federal government's Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative. You, know, you really emphasize the importance of recognizing that people's health is situated within their complicated life trajectories and that if we don't, as you said, meet people where they are and really provide them with a broad range of social services that are supportive of their health needs, we're really going to kind of miss the boat. You've emphasized the importance of adapting lessons from the global context to the domestic epidemic and really emphasizing that it should be a dynamic relationship of learning and sharing of innovative approaches. The importance of planning for a future of integration or combined approaches to pandemic preparedness and response and the HIV epidemic. It's important to have surge capacity in the event of a health crisis, but also that combining and thinking about how these platforms reinforce each other is really important for long-term program sustainability as well. And of course, you know, this issue of funding, that it's really essential to fully fund the EHE initiative. That means educating Congress and a new cohort of members of Congress about the importance of domestic and global HIV programs and really bringing communities and advocacy you know, into the conversation to emphasize the relevance for domestic health and for health security writ large. So thank you very much for joining me today. And we'll be watching those policy changes as well over the years to come. So thank you. Thank you, Catherine. A pleasure to talk with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 